morning, church. This morning, we have the wonderful honor of having Pastor Fenton Moorhead back with us at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. Pastor Fenton pastored, was the lead pastor. He was the senior pastor here from 1989 to 2001, and under his leadership, along with his wife, Mary, birthed Second Mile Mission, which is now a ministry that reaches across Fort Bend County, serving the under-resourced, also Living Water International, which literally gives living water, not just fresh water, but living water to souls that are thirsting around the world. Sugar Creek, welcome with me this morning, Pastor Fenton Moorhead. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We just so loved our time here and uh, never wanted it to end. But God has bigger plans than we have. Do you know that? And thank God we are in His hands and not in our own. And uh, God has continued to bless us, especially in the area of missions. You know, we were here 11 years, and the decade from 1990 to the year 2000, this church gave $7.5 million to world mission causes. That is generosity, folks. That is remarkable. And this, the church has such a history of loving people, loving the staff, uh, supporting and giving. And uh, I celebrate that today. And I celebrate who you are today. I'm so thankful to Pastor Mark for inviting us back. I'm so thankful for his leadership of the church and the continuation of the vision of missions, the amazing work this church is doing around the world. And also now in prisons, changing the culture of prisons totally. God is doing wonderful things in and through this church family, and I'm just so very, very thankful for that. And to be back today, you know, I get to choose what I want to preach on today. I didn't get an assignment, so I get to pick something I really want to share. So I went to my favorite chapter in the Gospels is Luke chapter 15, and that's where we're going to go today. And you, you have an outline in your program, your bulletin, and perhaps your Bible with you if you want to follow along. I love this chapter in the Scripture. Um, Jesus had an affinity for people with messed up lives, okay? And they were drawn to Him. And there were religious people of his day, religious leaders of his day, that did not understand this. And they had a very bad case of spiritual pride. And so we're going to look at that. Look at this first verse in Luke chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating being friends with such sinful people, even eating with them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you have a love for everyday people. You have a love for people that struggle, that need mercy, that need forgiveness, and that you draw us to yourself 
through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so draw us once again today out of this world into your kingdom and your presence. I pray for people you have here today that need a word from God of strong encouragement that they matter to God. They matter to the Father in heaven. So, Lord, I ask you to speak through your word. Holy Spirit, speak in power this day, this time. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt less than? Have you ever felt like you didn't fit? Have you ever felt like you were left out? When they pick teams on the playground, were you the last person to be picked? Some of you identify with that. I think all of us have felt put down at one time or another. And I want you to know Jesus will never treat you that way. And that's what this chapter is all about. Jesus' self-righteous critics, full of spiritual pride, had lost touch with reality. They'd lost touch with themselves, with their own humanity, with their own sinfulness. They had lost touch with their hearts, and they focused on external things, on rules and regulations they could keep and be proud of. And so this filled them up with a spiritual pride, and they looked down on everyday people, on sinners, as less than them. And they strictly avoided them. They felt they were unclean. They felt these people intentionally break the laws we are seeking to keep. And so we're supposed to avoid them at all costs. But Jesus intentionally befriended sinful people, and they were drawn to him. I think sinful people were drawn to Jesus not because he cut them any slack morally, but because they sensed they mattered to him. He cared about them, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. You know, Jesus' style of ministry was going to the people. He didn't set up shop somewhere and say, if you want to come, come. He went to the villages. He walked and lived among the people, and he spoke to them. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's on a mountainside. It's not in an auditorium of some kind. He went to the people, and they were drawn to him because his teaching was different. His teaching meant something to the people, and they were drawn in. When he spoke about the kingdom of God, it included them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the spiritually proud. Blessed are those that who, who need mercy. Blessed are those who need forgiveness. And so Jesus taught, and these people were drawn to him because of the empty place in their hearts and their souls where they needed the love of God. And he personally was a, a magnet to these people, everyday, ordinary people. Many of his disciples and closest followers were people that had lived ugly and immoral lives and experienced transformation by coming to Christ. Jesus made his ministry very clear. He said in uh, 
Luke 19.10, he said that he had come to seek and save the lost. He explained in uh, Mark 2.11, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those that know they are sinners. So if you're struggling with sin today, good news for you. You're not excluded. Jesus is seeking you out, and He wants to offer you hope and a brand new life that you can enjoy forever and ever and ever. When I look at how Jesus attracted ordinary, everyday people, what it makes me think is, that's me. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love Him above all else. I fail daily in doing that. Uh, the second commandment is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And, you know, I still frequently, I don't know about you, but I get angry with people. You ever get angry? You ever fall short? You know, the Scripture tells us that we aren't the only people that struggle. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says that everyone, all people have sinned. All fall short of God's glorious standard. And so, what I learn is that God is holy. He doesn't grade on the curve. God is holy. And so, I need the difference that He can make in my life. If you're, the true human condition is to be messed up. That's it. And so when we deal with this and admit our need, God begins to work. Sin is not primarily the sinful things we think, say, or do. Sin is a condition of the heart. It's much deeper. It's an attitude of rebellion, of just simply desiring to do things our way. You know, we don't need lessons in being selfish. Did you know that? You know, uh, how many of you were totally generous as a toddler and shared your toys with everybody, always? Oh, we don't need lessons on being selfish. And so Jesus here in this great chapter in the Bible, gives three stories to speak. He's reaching out to these superior-minded people, these religious super-ego people. He's reaching out to them to help them understand what his life is all about. And so he tells three stories. First one is about lost sheep. Does one lost sheep matter? If you have a hundred sheep and only one is missing, does the one lost one matter? He says, Jesus says, yes. In John chapter 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I call them by name. Lost sheep have a name. And so when I think of the shepherd going and looking for the one lost sheep, he's not saying, hey, are there any sheep out there? He's looking for one that's lost, and he's calling by name. 
And I believe the point there is this is how God reaches out to us. We don't come to God as a group. We come to him individually in our own life and our own heart, recognizing our need of him and approaching him then in repentance and faith. And that's what, that's what this is all about. And so one lost sheep does matter. And, and the scripture says in Luke 15, 7, the shepherd, when he finds the sheep, he says, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who think they have no need of repentance. Do you see the point? He's driving it home. Even one lost sheep matters. What about money? What if you had 10 silver coins, every one of them worth a day's wage, and you lost one of them? Would you say, who cares? Who cares? No. He says the lady who lost the coin lights a lamp and sweeps the floor until she can find it. And when she finds it, she says, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. And in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. You want to cause a party in heaven? Repent from your sin and give your life over to Christ. And so Jesus is painting this beautiful picture of one lost sheep, one lost coin, but he doesn't stop there. The main story tells is asking the question, does one lost person matter? One lost person. And he tells this story that Charles Dickens called the greatest story ever told. The story of the, the man who is a wealthy landowner with two sons. The wealthy man who has hired servants. And the youngest son is rebellious and angry. Angry and rebellious. The older son is also angry but he's compliant. He stays, but he doesn't stay out of love. And so we see this story. To illustrate the point further, now in verse 11, why Jesus eats with notorious sinners, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Imagine the turmoil in this young man. You know, I think he's like a bottle of soda that you're shaking and it's about to explode. He wants no restrictions, no boundaries. He's not asking his father for a blessing is what was to be done. Instead, he's asking for his father's money. What he's really saying to his father is, I don't want to wait until you die. It's just like you, you die right now. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I don't want anything to do with your way of life. And amazingly, the father agrees and gives him his share of the estate. Now, this angers the people listening to Jesus, the religious people. They're really angry about this. They're thinking, well, this is ridiculous. No father would do that. He would rebuke the son. He would tell him to go away. He'd tell him to go to his room, go to timeout, whatever. 
He wouldn't give him the money. So why does his father give this rebellious son his share of the state? I think it's because the father is willing to endure the pain of rejected love. He's willing to endure the pain of rejected love. Why would the Father in heaven send his Son to die on a cruel cross for us? He's willing to endure pain for us, to express his love to us. He recognizes his Son has come of age and his Son is distant and unresponsive. The Son's request breaks his heart, but he knows that love and devotion can never be forced. It is a given. And so he makes a hard choice to let his son go. So he gives the share of the estate, and I think in his heart he is longing for the son, for him to one day return with a new attitude, a new longing for a different life. We read next in verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. He moved to a distant land. He wanted distance from his father. He wanted distance from all the culture that was about the truth he had learned as a child growing up. He wanted to go and experiment. He wanted to see what the world had to offer. So he went to a far country. He probably went to a pagan city that was a seaport that had every kind of vice possible, available, easy to get. He wasted all his money in wild living. This lifestyle quickly emptied his pockets and his heart, and his heart. What he discovered was that this rebellion wasn't what he thought it was going to be. What he thought exciting and thrilling did not work the way he thought it would work. It disappeared along with his money. What was once attractive now became a shadow that started to haunt him. His money and his friends, new friends, supposed friends, quickly were gone. I think there's something to think about here for us. Every poor choice we make can be followed by a batch of poorer choices if we don't see what's happening. And so the young son is at a point now where everything has gone wrong, but he's still proud. And so he attaches himself to a person in that country. We, we read next, here's what happens, verse 13. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer, a pig farmer, to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods, the seed pods he was feeding the pigs, looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Put yourself in the son's place right now. Imagine what he felt. He had trashed the moral fiber he'd been taught growing up. 
He had trashed and turned his back on the foundation of his life. He had made worldly treasure and worldly pleasure his God. He had become a broken person living in filth. The emptiness he felt had to be deep and profound. I think he felt hollow inside. All that he thought was going to be glamorous was not. And in his rebellion, he did not experience genuine love or intimacy. He used people, and he was used by people, and he was a fool. And so I think he felt, I burned all my bridges, here I am. My life is a mess. What do I do next? That's when I think he started to remember home in a different way, a very different way. He had thought of home before as a trap, a place where he was restricted, where he couldn't be himself, where he was kept from experiencing life. But now he's thinking home is where people were treated with dignity and kindness and respect, and even the hired servants were treated so very good, they had enough food to eat to spare. And there he was dying in hunger. So home now became a different kind of place. But could he go home? He'd burned the bridges. Would his father welcome him back home after all he had done? After how badly he had hurt his father, had his father forgotten now all about him and had firmly shut the door? Had he been disowned? Big point here. The greatest sin was not the waste of money or immorality. The greatest sin was the broken relationship with his father. See, our greatest problem isn't the stuff we say, think, or do. It's our broken relationship with God who loves us and cares for us and has given us truth to live by. The commandments of God are not grievous. They are like a honeycomb, the Scripture says. They are sweet to behold, and they are life-affirming and life-giving. They don't restrict. They open doors of goodness. So we read, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. He says, I will go home to my father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've broken the commands you taught me. I've sinned against heaven and you. I've dishonored you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. That's good enough for me now. I don't deserve anything more. I'm not worthy. Just let me work like one of the hired hands. What's happening to this young man? I believe what he's experiencing could be called a holy ambush. God sneaks up on him in the midst of all of his struggle, in the midst of the mess that he's made. What's a holy ambush? A holy ambush is when the Holy Spirit interrupts your messed up thinking and speaks to your heart. 
and you start thinking in a different way. A window to your soul begins to open. You begin to seek truth. You become teachable, even correctable. You stop making excuses or blaming others or bad breaks. You start taking responsibility for your life and your choices. And he recognizes that breaking God's commands was far more than foolish. He had broken hearts, broken his father's heart. He had broken the hearts of those that loved him most. Repentance is far more than words. It's brokenness. It's a a deep hurt inside at failure and a desire for restoration and reconciliation and to see a difference in your life. I think this wayward son admits he's had enough of what the world offered and his selfish choices never produced anything beautiful. Beauty is a gift from God. And beautiful is when there is genuine love and faithfulness and goodness and all that he had gone out to experiment and experience did not produce beauty. It produced anguish, anguish. So I want to ask you and myself, anybody here today in need of a holy ambush? Need God to sneak up on you and say, wait a minute, this is not a good choice. This is not a good direction. This is not a good thought. The direction you're about to choose will not end up as something beautiful, but something that'll hurt you and others deeply. Please reconsider. So we read that the young man does repent and he returns home to his father, verse 22. He returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could finish the next sentence, his father called out, servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, a ring that shows he belongs to the family. Get sandals for his feet. What are you saying to the son? No, you've come home. You're my child again. You belong to me. I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to bestow grace. You're dear to me. You were dead, but you've come back to life again. You were lost, but now you're found. And so we see this celebration. There was a celebration for the lost sheep, a celebration for the lost coin, and now a celebration for the lost son. The father says, we must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Can you imagine now how this rebellious son felt? Stunned, amazed, 
amazed at the generosity of the person he had hurt most deeply in the world would bring him back and embrace him and love him? Amazed, humbled, relieved, astonished. And amazingly, suddenly, instead of lost, he feels safe and secure. He's back where he belongs. We all belong with the Father in heaven. He's saying to all of us, come home like this lost son. Come home. Sadly, the older brother was not glad to see him. He heard the news and the party noise, and he was angry and resentful. He would not go in and join the party. And so his father went out and begged him. Instead of coming in, he decided to tell his father off. He'd always been angry and compliant, but it was not out of love. He said, look, I've slaved for you all these years, and you never gave me anything. And now this son of you that wasted everything on prostitutes has come home, and you've thrown him a party. And what does the father say? He doesn't rebuke the older brother. He says, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So what, what's going on here? Jesus' critics are the older brother. The ones, they don't want that son to come home. He should get what he deserves because they think that by their good works, they are somehow earning God's favor. It's impossible for us to earn God's favor by good works. We earn God's favor by admitting we failed, by admitting we're sinners, by having a broken heart, by realizing our lost condition. It is a blessing to know you're lost. When you know you're lost, it's when you can be found. It's a great blessing to have a holy ambush, to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And some of you today, that's exactly what you're feeling. God is interrupting you and saying, wait a minute, don't run from me, come to me. The father didn't stand there with his back turned and his arm folded, arms folded. He ran to that repentant son, embraced him, kissed him, and gave him a fresh new robe. God is ready to welcome you. The Father in heaven is ready to welcome you. You know, in the first story, the shepherd goes after the lost sheep. In the second story, she sweeps until she finds the lost coin. She seeks it. The father didn't go out and look for the lost son. Why? I think it's because God calls us. He does not coerce us. 
we have to come to a place where we repent, come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we take that step toward home. And when we do, the Father in heaven is there with open arms to welcome us. But why is he there with open arms to welcome us? Holy Spirit has been called the hound of heaven <laughs> who sniffs us out. And once he's on your heels, he is relentless. And the result is a brokenness, a realization that God does love you in the midst of your lostness. Listen, you don't have to be a first-class sinner like the rebellious son was. You don't have to have thrown all your money away on wild living. You could just be an ordinary run-of-the-mill sinner, an everyday sinner, a common sinner, but you're still separated from God. You still desperately need Him. And so He pursues you through the Holy Spirit, and He reaches out to you through the proclamation of the gospel. Here's one verse of Scripture that's gospel. And the point is not just holy people are loved by God, okay? When we were utterly helpless, Romans 5, 6, when we were utterly helpless, we could not help ourselves in any way. We could not change ourselves, our lives. We could not earn God's love in any way. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us what? Sinners. Died for us sinners. What's the prayer that's always answered yes? It's also in the Gospel of Luke. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Any lost sons or daughters out there today that need to come home? God calling you? Don't say you're too unworthy. We all are. What would keep you from coming home to a God who so loves you, he gave his only son to die for your sins and is ready to embrace you and welcome you home? Nothing should stop you. Your life will never be the same. Oh, you'll still have plenty of struggles, but you will have the presence of God to make all the difference, all the difference. Let's pray. Let's pray. Would you cry out to God right now from your heart? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me. I admit my need of you. I admit I've strayed. I've gone my own way. And now in repentance, I turn to you. And I ask for your mercy in Christ. I thank you that Christ has paid the price for me to open the door. And I choose Christ, not the world. I choose Christ. Lord, bless every person praying right now. Hear their prayer as you promised. And bless them 
in a remarkable way. Give them hope and the brand new life you've promised that you make all things new and the old is gone. I thank you for this. I claim every person here for you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.